I'm Tom from the Ballpark Bros. Here's Mike. This next presentation on the Four-Eyed Radio Network is brought to you by Revenge Lover. Stand out from the crowd. For more information, visit revengelover.com and mention the podcast for 10% off on your order. Hello, this is Steve. And this is Eric. And you're listening to the Crichton Cast. I'm declaring a state of emergency. All personnel restricted to base. Everything seen and heard in that room is top secret. Yes, sir. He didn't tell you what's inside the sphere, did he? You didn't tell him, did you? You didn't tell him what's inside the sphere. And how would you know that, Beth? I am not a warrior. Very soon, you will be. We're going to the jungle. Amy wants green drop drink. No. Amy wants green drop drink. All right, all right. Where they were married. God creates dinosaurs. God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man destroys God. Man creates dinosaurs. Dinosaurs eat man. Woman inherits the earth. All right, Eric. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm a little interested and excited to see what you have to say about a case of need. Ah, absolutely. And so what we're talking about this week is uh, a case of need and the, the movie version of a case of need called The Carry Treatment that uh, uh, was made based on the novel. But uh, yeah, starting out with the actual book itself. Now, the, the, the book, Case of Need, uh, obviously written by Michael Crichton or we wouldn't be talking about it. However, it was published originally under one of his, uh, his old pseudonyms. Uh, yeah, Jeffrey Hudson, which was the this is the only book published under Jeffrey Hudson. And uh, I found a quote in his own words. He said that Jeffrey Hudson was a dwarf from the court of Charles I, a great adventurer, actually. And I thought it would be very entertaining for me to have the name of a dwarf. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, uh, I'll be posting later. I found the fake bio for Jeffrey Hudson also, and uh, it's just very interesting. But he created this uh, pseudonym, and the plan was eventually for this to be all his medical-like works to be under Jeffrey Hudson because he obviously had John Lange, too, as another one. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, he did this because it was while he was practicing and he was at Harvard, and supposedly some of these characters were based on characters that he knew at Harvard, and he didn't uh, want any of that known. I can understand that and also in this specific case um, the the subject matter here can be touchy for some so I wouldn't mm -hmm. be surprised that uh, that may have been one of the reasons he wanted to distance his real life name from it yes. um, just to prevent any potential backlash from intruding into his real life particularly at that time if you think about it and we'll get into it as we talk about what the case of need talks about but you know in the late 60s when he was writing this because this was released in 68 correct uh yes the novel yeah so you know when he was writing this um yeah it was a very touchy subject all around especially i'm sure in the medical community um the last interesting little fact i found on this book was that he won an award for this he won america's edgar Allan poe award uh for it from the uh, mystery writers of america but he did not want to accept this uh his um he had to but he didn't want anybody to know i mean it blows your whole case of having a you know having a different name that you're writing for um, it's like they're gonna know i'm not a dwarf when i show up to take the <laughs> get the award exactly they're gonna I mean, notice the height requirements <laughs> but yeah his agents called and told him that there's this banquet in new york and he if he won he had to accept and he said that he was so hoping that he would not win because he did not want to and then uh he ended up winning and so he's apparently i laid on a friday afternoon. He slipped out of the hospital, flew down to New York, accepted the award, um, made a hasty speech, and he said every time a flashbulb went off, it filled him with dread because he didn't <laughs> want anybody to know. And then for the next few weeks, he just lived in the state of panic because he didn't want any of the professors or anybody else knowing about this, um, you know, in Boston. So... Uh, but apparently he got away with it. He, claim, he claims on the, uh, they claim on the official website that that never happened. That nobody ever put two and two together. Apparently, so. 
Yeah, well, I can't imagine there's a ton of people. I mean, I couldn't honestly tell you who the last you know five or six Edgar Award winners were. Uh, you know, basically, unless it says on the cover Edgar Award winner, I sure. probably don't know. It's not something that I follow on a regular basis. Um, and so I can imagine that, especially in a community of doctors, they're they're going to be uh, a little busy, possibly with other things other than uh, concerning themselves with the trivia of who's winning what awards. They might read the book. They might even see it says Edgar Award winning on the book. Uh, um, but then, you know, that's unless they put his picture on the book itself, the people are, you know, it's still going to be published under the pseudonym. So, um, at least until 1993, <laughs> when they just went ahead and said, yeah, well, everybody knows now. Let's yeah. just re release it and put it under the name that everybody knows so that we can sell some more copies. Right. Well, I mean, now Michael Crichton's a hot topic in the 90s. You know, we got Jurassic Park, we got everything else. Let's make some more money off of these old books. So, exactly. I don't know exactly how Michael Crichton felt about that, but I'm sure his publishers loved it. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you guys, you guys. Well, as long as he was getting those uh, residual checks coming in, you know, maybe, maybe that little boost was enough to convince him that all right well it's not like it's really a secret now anyway <laughs> that's right that's right so uh but a case of need so uh the synopsis for this book is we have this doctor at this uh, his name is dr john barry in the book mm-hmm. and he is uh, working the beginning of this novel is very i felt like dry to me but it was extremely medical jargon and it was talking about medicine at that time and how difficult it was to do things in the hospital mm-hmm. uh, and so it was very much so this and you get to get to know what John Barry does at the hospital and then all of a sudden uh, pretty quickly he gets this phone call and a good friend of his Dr. Lee is uh, accused of murder and in jail and so it it flip-flops all of a sudden and I like this character in this book because this isn't a medical book this is a PI a private investigator book yeah yeah, it's actually a very interesting uh, whodunit-style uh, murder mystery, basically, with uh, with medical undertones. Mm-hmm. But once you get past the first, it, it is very hard to get past those first, I even want to say maybe a third of the book. Yeah. And the first third or so is just like, it's very dry, it's very medical, it's very, you know, filled with, you know, if you want to learn something, I'm sure, you know, it's all legitimate medical information. That, you know, he's just talking about his job as a pathologist in this hospital and what he's doing. And it, it all seems pretty pretty legit as far as that that is concerned. However, it's not very interesting <laughs> a read until the the mystery of it starts popping up. You know, he gets that phone call from his from his good friend, um, which I think is important to note when we when we talk about the movie. Um, mm-hmm. The um, you know, and and he, he changes. He immediately says, "Okay, well, you know what? I'm going to take some time off from this." And I'm going to go all over the city interviewing people, talking to people, you know, stealing evidence in some cases. I mean, just um, absolutely going complete private dick on it. And it's uh, it it gets pretty awesome. And especially near the back third of the book, I would say it's actually very intriguing and fast paced. And uh, once you get there, it's, you know, finishes off strong. It does, and I love it. It's almost this switch that goes off when he finds out his friend has been arrested, um, and he doesn't know what he's been arrested for until he goes to the um, uh, to the police department. But it's this great switch that turns, and all of a sudden, this character, this doctor, he just goes into detective mode, and you find out he was a cop in a previous life. Yeah. But um, this confidence that he sells, and the way he just the banter, the snapping back in the conversations is so great. He's so confident. Even the way he's talking to the police officer, mm-hmm. um, asking about his badge number, and then explaining to him the law and everything like that. He's not talking like a doctor at that point. He really goes, and that, and he's following these clues. And that middle third of the book, that's all it is. And I'm wondering for a while, I'm like, man, are we getting anywhere? And it's great because somewhere in the, around the two-thirds range, he kind of realizes that when he's sitting at home one of these times, like, he's missing something. Like, all this stuff is out there, but he's not piecing it together. And I thought that was great because I thought the same thing. I'm like, okay, you're following all these clues and you're researching all this stuff, but we haven't talked about, like, piecing it all together. Yeah. Yeah, it's like I said, basically the second two-thirds of the book are very, very good. You get all the evidence presented. You get him going and getting that evidence. You get the witty banter when he's going to get that, both when he's talking. Like I said, when he was talking to the cops and he convinces them. Uh, he basically lets them believe he's a lawyer. Um, yeah, he does. Because he never says it himself. He just said, he just said yeah, basically. Yes. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah whatever. <laughs> like like kind of dismissive. Like, yeah, technically he did acknowledge. You know, the guy asked, are you his lawyer? And he just said, yeah, sure. Um, um, 
but he never went, walked in there and said, "I'm his lawyer." He just let them let him believe that and uh, work with that assumption to to get in and see his friend. Otherwise, he wasn't going to be allowed in. Right. And uh, if he hadn't been allowed in, he wouldn't have been able to to get anywhere with it because he wouldn't have been able to get that first that start of the information to to get the ball rolling to really find out what was going on. He would have mm-hmm. been in the dark. He probably would have just been at work hearing about it on the news and just you know whatever. The interesting thing about this book to me is, and um, the reason that today you would have a hard time reading it, is this is very much like a time capsule of what I feel like it was very like in the 60s with the uh, abortion, because that's what this comes down to, because Dr. Lee is uh, in jail for murder, but what it is is he aborted a woman and this woman died is what the charges are. And at that time, it was illegal. Roe versus Wade didn't even go to um, Supreme Court until 1970, wasn't passed till 1973 and this book was released in 68 so you know that this was a very real thing and yeah. something not talked about in the medical community at all yeah it was something that was, that was right on the cusp of becoming a big nationwide debate and you know just on the you know, it was right there where it, it was obviously it was being done you know mm-hmm. that that's something that no matter which side of the fence you fall on you have to acknowledge the fact that they happen legal yep. or not they do happen um, when they're illegal they tend to be more dangerous because you know, the the whole illegality of it requires people to go to places that they wouldn't normally trust their health to <laughs> to get these types of things done. So in the in the book, um, what we have here is a doctor who is willing to break the law to provide the service in a safe way. Um, and because of that, he's targeted as the, the suspect when something goes wrong. This girl gets an abortion. She dies from it because it's performed badly. And people know that he, well, this guy doesn't. So must have been him. Yeah, exactly. He's an abortionist. So what he's doing is already illegal. Throw him in jail. Yeah. Yeah. So what uh, what Dr. Barry's uh, you know, trying to do, he's he knows about it. He, he knows what his friend's been doing. He's been, you know, helping to uh, to make sure things go smoothly on the hospital side so that he's not caught there. You know, so he knows that uh, he, he's got a bit of a stake in this, too. You know, mm-hmm. if it comes out, everything that's been going on, he has the potential to get in some trouble himself. But that's not his his motivation here. That right. never appears to be his motivation here. Like it's casually mentioned at one point. It's like, yeah, if they find out about this, I could be in trouble. But that never appears to be his motivation. You never get the sense that he's doing it for himself. It's always for his friend and his, his friend's wife, uh, too, specifically. He's very concerned about uh, Dr. Lee's wife. Uh, he is, and because he's he's checking in with her all the time, his own wife is over there with uh, Dr. Lee's wife and kid and everything, too. So, uh, But you're right. There is no, this is all about me or myself. He's trying to get to the bottom of this mystery of what's going on. Uh, to give Michael Crichton some more credit in writing this, this even goes to when he wrote uh, State of Fear back in the 2000s, when the whole climate change was such a hot debate thing, you know, he wrote about all of this uh, abortion stuff when it was, I'm sure, a hot debate at that time. He, on his website, even says that uh, it was an issue ignored by medicine when he was a student. And Mm -hmm. even though millions of Americans were either flying out of country or having them done illegally, so I think we don't realize it, but it probably was a hot topic in the 60s. And so he took to writing this book about it that's kind of giving his opinion, and it's almost, and it could be political to somebody who's going through this or some medical person. You agree one way or the other. Even today, you agree one way or the other with Roe versus Wade, you know, and this is 40, 50 years later. Um, but I this, I love the fact that he's taking something that was a hot topic and turning it into this story where you could agree with either side if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they, and, they really make it, he, he presents it in such a way where you can kind of get the impression which direction he leans, yeah. but it's not blatant in your face. It's not right. a pro-life book or a pro-choice book. It's, it's mm-hmm. not. It happens to have to do with the subject of abortion, but it is not um, politically charged on one side or the other uh, directly. Um, you right. can definitely tell which way he leans, you know, I think. Um, yeah. Especially if you, I don't know if uh, your version of the book had uh, the this, this notes. It did, yes. The okay. medical notes, like the back, well, a couple of them during the chapters, but then the very back, you know, few chapters were just all the extra notes if you want to read up on them, yeah. Yeah, and in there um, was basically his presentation of, here's why I think it should be okay. <laughs> yep. And so it was definitely, you know, when you get to there, you're like, okay, for sure we can see what side of the fence he leans, but during mm-hmm. the book, during the story, 
it's not presented in such a way as to make one side or the other the the quote unquote bad guy. Um, right. The bad guy in this case is the person who did it poorly. Yes. It doesn't matter whether or not you agree with it being done or not in the first place. The fact of the matter is it was, but it was botched mm-hmm. and it caused a death. Um, yeah, and it's a great um, cast of characters in the book. And when we get into the movie, I I believe it's a really good cast of characters in the movie too. But I love the um, the hospital that he's in, uh, Randall. That's right, J.D. Randall. You know, they were the family of father and grandfather, great grandfather, all doctors and all prominent people. And so, uh, you know, you're getting into the the skeletons in this rich, well-known family's closet. So he's you know giving it to the man almost type of thing <laughs> <laughs> by investigating uh, because it's. J.D. Randall's daughter is the one that mm-hmm. uh, dies, Karen Randall. So he's investigating into their family and into the uncle, and he talks to the brother, and you know he's he's just crossing the bar. And I love is the sheriff or whatever that he keeps running into, um, but he always has this quick banter thing for him. And I feel like by the end of the book, and even the same in the movie, like the sheriff and uh, uh, and he both like they work well together. I I, I could have seen, especially in the movie, how they were writing. Did you ever get fired um, from that doctor job? <laughs> Call yep. me up. Call me up. You. Exactly. Yeah. Like the, <laughs> this doctor and this cop that works together to solve crimes type of thing. That's where I, I could have seen this going. Yeah. I could have made that. I could have spun that off into a TV show. I'd watch mm-hmm. that. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Exactly. Which eventually, you know, Michael Crichton did make an ER, but there wasn't any cool doctor invest or cop investigations in that. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So it's very. Like I said, if you get past, you got to get past that first third of the book, which mm-hmm. it can be very dry, but it is necessary to set up the rest. It's unfortunately not something that you could skip. You can't just eh, start at chapter ten and go forward. You're fine. No, you you do have to read the whole thing in order to get the complete story. But you do kind of have to push through that dry medical writing at the beginning to get to the to the meat of the story and get to the good stuff. But yes. I say it's worth it. I say it's worth getting through that dry part to get to the meat of the story and get the full. Yeah, I no, and I de- I definitely agree. And it's um and it's not even necessarily a happy ending. And you know, here's your spoiler alert. But when Doctor Lee gets out because he is ostracized and because he is now known as this abortionist, he can no longer practice there. And his his family has already been you know tormented, throwing you know bricks through their window and starting a fire on their front lawn and everything else. You know, there's that little bit of racism in there too. Yeah, because he, um, he is a a, a Chinese American, I believe. Yes, yep. they, I know he was Asian, but I think they specified that he was. Uh, Chinese American. Yeah, and so they, so unfortunately, so Dr. Lee, this practice they've had for so long, he's got to uproot himself, and he talks about uh, going and delivering babies for Hollywood uh, actors and actresses. So, <laughs> you know, um, so so in the end, it, this mistaken um, thing it just completely ruins his family's life, and they've got to uproot themselves. So there's that there's that sadness there, even though you get that, yeah, he's a free man and he didn't do it, and we proved him right. Uh, you know, there still was not any good that came of that. Yeah, exactly. He still had to to move. His family still had to go through all that during the time. Um, you mentioned they 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 had their home vandalized. You know, rocks or bricks thrown through their windows. A flaming cross put up on their front yard um, that their that their kids had to see. You know, they had kids and they had to witness this. They had to see this happen and and wonder why is this happening to us? You know, why are these people attacking us? And it's because well, it's because your dad's a doctor and he provides a service that some people don't agree with. Um, so. That's that's what's happening. Um, that's how they're taking it out. Yeah, and I did like that they they don't make Lee out. He doesn't make Lee out to be a complete horrible bad guy. Um, there was the point uh, when they're there after that happened with the burning cross and the rocks that um, he's in the house and flipping through all of these letters that Doctor Lee's got, and most of them are all you know hate mail and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And he runs across the one that's obviously somebody that he had helped at some point with an abortion, and she says thank you and I'm so sorry and like I'm praying for you or whatever it says in it. But um, you know there is some good in all of this stuff and so you know that Dr. Lee is also helping people even though so many people don't agree with him um, you know so Crichton does a very good job of letting you decide whether you agree or not even though he does tell you at the end what his standpoint is um, you just see all the different sides of this it, it, you see that in everything though you even see that in um, the uh, J.D. Randall's you know uh, new wife right now and even in when he's talking to uh, when Barry is talking to his wife uh, you really just see 
what everybody else kind of thinks, even though they're not talking directly maybe about abortion, but what they think of what's happening to him. Because underneath it all, they all kind of know, but they don't say that, yeah, he's an abortionist. Because yeah. so many doctors in the hospital even knew that he did that. It's just you keep this on the quiet because this yeah, is you illegal don't, and we could be arrested for yeah, it. Yeah, you don't say it out loud. Everybody knows. And that's from what I understand, that's how it was in the medical community during that time. And, you know, everybody within the community knew who did them. And so if they had somebody who came to them, if they weren't one of those people, they knew who to send them to. They, they, they wouldn't be able to say just outright, oh, you need this, you go here. It's more like, a, let me give you a referral. Your situation may require the specialist, uh, you know, this specialist over here. And they would give it, you know, they would refer to the people who were willing to do it because there were plenty of doctors who didn't necessarily agree with the law but mm-hmm. also weren't willing to break it. Yeah. So, but those ones were the ones that would, would refer, you know, so it was a loosely kept secret. It was one of those things you don't say it out loud, but everybody knows who you can go to. Um, and so I think you get that you get that sense in this book that almost, you know, the majority of the doctors and the staff in the hospital know that, and that's why he's immediately thought to be guilty because everybody's like, well, well, we know he does them, so that's no shock. I guess he slipped up. And, mm-hmm. you know, his good friends, like Dr. Barry, are like, no, he's he's too good. He wouldn't have messed up that way. And then, you know, during the investigation, he finds even more reason why it couldn't possibly be his friend because his friend is too good of a doctor. And then he, he's looking at it more and more and he's thinking, you know, and that's kind of when it clicks. Like you said, and he starts piecing things together. It's like, wait a minute. Not only would my friend, the doctor, not have been able to do this, but I don't think any actual doctor would have done this because of these circumstances that were that were leading up to it. Right. Um, the circumstances being, in the end, she wasn't really pregnant. Exactly. Yeah. It was a it was a thyroid issue, or it was some other uh, issue that was going on that was causing her to believe that she was pregnant, but mm-hmm. she never had an actual pregnancy test, and that's the thing that really tripped him up he was looking at this going well i know that dr lee would have given her a, a test would have tested right. her before determine you know before actually performing the procedure um and then you know like you said he, he kind of figured it was like well i'm suspecting this doctor over here but then no they would have done the test too so <laughs> what's going on here what and that's when it starts clicking, and uh, and he realizes because there's also another thing going on in this hospital, and it's kind of like this hospital's a character too, because the hospital's got there's like a seedy underbelly to this hospital because there's drugs missing from this hospital. Yeah, they're they're missing a gross of morphine ampules, which uh, mm-hmm. I, I work in uh, a pharmacy. Um, I don't work in the actual physical pharmacy, but I do data entry for pharmacy, and I know how carefully every single drop of morphine is watched and controlled. Um, so for a gross to be missing, that's a large amount of morphine with, with a tremendous value on the street uh, being sold. So, yeah, it's a big deal for this to be missing from the hospital. Big deal. Yep. And that's and that's where you get involved with... Um, it was, a, was it a black boyfriend that Karen Randall had was what it was? I can't remember if they were a boyfriend or dating or something. They, um, he was and, known and, and, and to and have been with her. Um, she was known to... Not necessarily pr- promiscuous. be promiscuous, was, but to brag yeah. about being promiscuous. But nobody knew for sure. You know, everybody everybody had their opinion as to whether or not she was all talk oh, or yes, whether yeah. or not um, you, you find out. Uh, the fact is, no, she really was <laughs> quite. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, you know, basically even her friends or, you know, so-called friends, which she didn't have many of, they were just like, well, you know, she talks she talks big, but I don't know if she's actually doing anything or not. Yeah. Um, but it turns out, yes, she was. And yeah, this, uh, this African-American musician guy was one of the people uh, with whom she'd been known to, to have uh, dalliances with. And then the nurse was uh, this common denominator, per- and then this person who was not a doctor, and but knew all the proper procedure and how to do it, and was the one that performed this abortion that was not needed. Mm-hmm. Um, but something, and here's where we can start transitioning some into the movie. I do not believe this was ever pointed out in the movie, at least not not in the beginning. Um, when she came into the hospital, she was also administered penicillin. So while, yes, the abortion is why she was bleeding out and everything else, the penicillin she was allergic to and it made her hypertension and put her into shock. 
Yeah, she had an, uh, she had an anaphylactic reaction to the actual penicillin, um, although they did say that most likely she wouldn't have survived the bleeding. She had lost too much blood at that point, mm-hmm. um, and because of where the, the actual cut was that was causing the bleeding, they would not have been able to, to stop the bleeding in time. So they do say that while technically the anaphylaxis is what killed her, if it hadn't happened, she would have died anyway. She probably would have died yeah. eventually, yeah. yeah. And because that was a part in the book, because the uh, <clears throat> the young uh, doctor or whatever, you know, knew he had made a mistake because you're supposed to always check and ask for that, which in the movie, <clears throat> when Dr. Well, in the movie, he's got a different name, but when Barry <laughs> is asking, when Barry is in the hospital, they ask him, you know, blink mm-hmm. once, blink twice, are you allergic to penicillin, which happens in the book and happens in the movie, even though yeah. in the movie, you really don't know why they're saying this, but in the book, you kind of get that explanation in the beginning of how important uh, it is that you check with that before you administer penicillin. Yeah, you almost wonder if there was something cut from the original script or from the movie after it was filmed that uh, showed that because I believe, if I recall, I think there was a passing mention like during the the autopsy uh, mm-hmm. perhaps or at some point I do recall the allergy to penicillin being very 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 briefly mentioned but it was never focused on and it was never pointed out I, I don't believe that they ever actually said that was the cause of death like they did in the book so right. yeah in the in the film when they ask him you just kind of, you know, if you hadn't read the book, I guess you'd probably just brush it off as just normal medical practice. You know, mm-hmm. they're about to give you a medication. They're going to, if you're able to answer them, they're going to ask you if you're allergic to it. You know, just like when you go to the hospital, they ask you for your allergies and they check in against their reference and, and all that stuff. In, in the case of an emergency situation, they're not going to try to get all your allergies. They're just going to ask you about the one thing that they're about to give you right now. Right. So yeah. <laughs> it makes sense in just a medical standpoint. But having read the book, you realize, no, see, that's an important step that was missed in the you know at the beginning of this whole situation um so yeah it's it's kind of interesting i wonder if that was something that was cut for time or if it was just you know in some version of the script somewhere somebody said no 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 it's more dramatic if you know it was the bleeding that killed her right well and there were were a lot of differences uh i think now that we get to the movie which the title of the movie is the carry treatment and it was came out in 1972 mm-hmm. um but we go right to a quick change all of a sudden the reason it's the carry treatment is because the main character has gone from john barry to peter carry so while they rhyme, they are two different names. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, there's, a, there's a few changes to this character that, I mean, one of the changes I can understand because the, you know, Hollywood loves to inject a love story, even when yes. it's completely unnecessary. And this is one of those situations where they've done this. In the book, Dr. Barry is married. In fact, it's it's part of the story that his wife is over with Dr. Lee's wife, consoling her and her family, helping her out through this time, helping her deal with this situation. So she's getting the brunt of it um, over here while he's off investigating. In the movie, they make him single so they can uh, dangle a uh, love interest in front of him. <laughs> Which, very bravo job on the love interest with Jennifer O'Neill, who just is gorgeous in this, yes. Um, but just nothing short of stunning. I, I was like, wow. <laughs> wow. I, well, and this is how stunning, because the uh, you know J.D. Randall's new wife is supposed to be this young, beautiful lady, and she's nothing in comparison to Jennifer O'Neill's character, <laughs> um, who, what was her name, uh, Hightower? Yes, uh, Georgia Georgia Hightower. Georgia Hightower, yeah. Um, and, I mean, the sexual tension they add in right away when he sits down at breakfast with her and he asks what the smell is, and she's like, oh, I dropped vanilla on the front of me. Like, I mean, <laughs> it's just they just throw right into it. But you're right. Yeah. They change it right away because he's arriving. This is his first day that they introduce you. And so the first about ten minutes of the movie is zero, nothing at all, like the book, because they are introducing him as mm-hmm. a totally different type of character. He's coming from the West Coast. He's He's got a big new job at this Boston hospital, but he thinks to completely differently because he's a West Coast guy. Yeah. Which, okay, yeah, I mean, yeah, West Coast, East Coast, and maybe West Coast was, you know, more lax on a lot of this stuff, and they, they make just a did big, things differently. They make a big point. He comes in. He's not wearing a tie. They're like, Oh, yeah, no. They're like, plain clothes. Yeah, yeah. they're like... <laughs> He's all, I'm a doctor. He's like, show me your ID. I don't believe you're a doctor because you're not wearing a tie, basically. because yeah, well, that, that cop that was trying to get him when he first parks at the hospital, he's ignoring the cop. And the cop's like, hey, this is for a doctor. This is for a doctor. And he just pulls out his card and throws it right in his face and says something about a surgery thing. And uh, he's just, he's blunt and almost cocky like he's not just confident like the character in the book he's kind of cocky and rude about it i feel sometimes yeah he's definitely more brazen i would say than the 
than did Dr. Barry of the book. And it is also right from the beginning. Whereas with in the book, you see a progression. You see he's he's basically he's doing his thing. He's working his job and he becomes he comes out of his shell and becomes this investigator and this hard nosed private dick when it's necessary because of what his friend is going through. And that's right. another interesting point. Again, we say his friend, his good friend in the book, Dr. Lee, who now in the movie, he's just meeting. <laughs> Well, he's just meeting. They do make it seem like they knew each other previously. So, but it, it's very because he does say hi to him, and then they end up going out and shooting pool together uh, and stuff like that. So they already had some kind of a relationship, but it was so like maybe they knew each other in school or something like that. You know, it was nothing at all like the it's, relationship. It seems here. much like, more like a casual acquaintance. More like yes. this is the only guy he's ever met before at this place. So they're hanging out because he had previously you know known that this guy existed for one day somewhere back in school or something like that as opposed to the best of friends which is how it made it seem in the book yeah which changes i think the motive in the movie for why he's actually doing this because um i there's just not the strong motive you're not going to stick your neck out that far for a guy you barely know Mm -hmm. Um, yeah in in the movie it's much more about the search for justice he's mm -hmm. he's motivated by this this need for justice he wants to know what really happened because he doesn't buy the official story he doesn't buy it um Whereas in the book, he's trying to help his friend, and there's even moments of doubt within himself. You know, he, he's not 100% sure throughout the entirety of the book that his friend didn't do it. But he still wants to help his friend. So he right. wants to find out for sure. He wants to know for sure. And, that, you know, it does get to a point where he where it clicks and he says, okay, no, I know for a fact he didn't do it. Now I need to figure out who did do it. But in the movie, he starts out just... I need to know 100% sure he immediately believes his friend that uh, that he didn't do it, and he's out on this search for justice. It's mm -hmm. not really about his friend anymore. It's about this, you know, sticking it to the man who wants to push this story that uh, that this other thing happened. It's just a, a different motivation, and it makes for a difference in the character that's very noticeable if you've read the book. Yeah, and it's, uh, I mean... The, it I would say probably the biggest single change is his main character, and it's it's those two right there. It's he's he's not married, so we got the love interest and the um, maybe the girlfriend, and then he is not best friends with Doctor Lee. Otherwise, there's a lot of little things in here in the movie that I mean, the scene is exactly word for word like the book. Like when he first goes to the police department mm -hmm. and he's talking to that officer. I mean, it's the it's exactly as is written in the book, and the officer is the one that says, "Are you his lawyer?" And he's like, "Yeah," you know, like. Uh, uh, yeah, sure. You know, and then he lets him right in. Yeah, yeah. That's the ticket. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's who I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's some things that are lifted directly from the book and, you know, <clears throat> word for word or nearly so. And then there's other things that are just such a huge departure. Um, the whole bit, you know, they've, they've introduced this love interest for, you know, no reason other than Hollywood loves to inject a love story, even when it's completely unnecessary. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, not going to complain in this case because we get the amazing Jennifer O'Neill in this part, who not right, only, yes. like like we said, it's just absolutely stunning in this film, but also was one of the stronger actors in the film as well. So it ended up uh, working out in in all respects. But um, there's a scene in there where, you know, the the chief, Randall, the, the one in charge, uh, sends somebody to try to get a photograph of Dr. Carey in bed with his lover as, as if it's going to uh, <laughs> be, be blackmail people. Uh, fodder later on you know somewhere down the line he's not going to want this picture out and uh he gets a hold of this the, he, he catches the cameraman steals the negative takes it down to this photoshop which all of a sudden we're tied back into a scene from the book that mm -hmm. you know i'm like okay there's an interesting way to get to that scene because this scene was in the book but this whole bit leading up to him being here was not <laughs> was not there yes yep but the fact that he goes with this negative to this photoshop and says i want this as big as you can get it puts it on a poster board and walks it into <laughs> randall's office it's like here you go <laughs> this is what you wanted to a consenting adults in bed together i loved that scene um but that was a very like i mean throughout this whole movie peter carey is really screwing himself to potentially have a job in this hospital like he's just making enemies left and right yeah again we're talking about it. it's literally his first day when we show up here he's he's making enemies and he's taking all this time off which in the yeah. book he's taking Taking this time off, but he's established as well. So right. while it is brought up, it's like, hey, you, you know, 
you haven't been doing your actual job lately because you've been doing this. It's also not as dangerous for him career-wise because he's more established. Mm-hmm. You know, the biggest threat to his career is that you know there's a chief position opening up that he might be considered for, but he also might be passed over for it if they're looking at this recent. You know, you know, they're like, well, yeah, you've been doing great up until now, but recently you missed a whole bunch of days going off on this escapade trying to help your friend. So maybe he doesn't get that promotion in the in the movie. It's more like, okay, you just started and now you're not at work. <laughs> yeah, and now you're, yeah, and like the next day you're asking for the time off and everything. Yeah, um, <clears throat> the other big difference, uh, Doctor Lee has no family in the movie. Yeah, that's another. I mean, we at least definitely don't ever see any family. I mean, this is such a big part of it um, because we go back and forth to the family and what's happening to his wife and kid uh, that you don't see a thing about. In fact, Doctor Lee was only in there a couple of times while he was in jail, and then once at the very end of the movie. Yeah, it it really takes the the plot points for that character um, whose name they also changed uh, for some reason. It wasn't Doctor Lee; it was Doctor Tao. Tao in the in the film, Um, not sure why that was necessary either you know it's one of those things you wonder (laughs) right like like why is piedmont moving all over the country um for no discernible reason it's no discernible reason yeah if you if you listen to our andromeda strain um uh episode that was our frustration uh we had new mexico and arizona and utah is all piedmont but different states and same thing here you know the doctor's names are changing uh just little things like that that you're just curious like huh i wonder who didn't like john barry for a name and so peter carey was the better name for the 70s right yeah i'm not sure um what that was or maybe there was an actual john barry somewhere that they who's toes they didn't want to step on or <laughs> true maybe yeah, um, yeah. you know it's interesting when they make these changes and we don't know why uh, we'd love to know hey if anybody out there has that trivia uh, please let us know you can find us all over the interwebs we're on facebook we're on twitter at uh, Crichtoncast is the easiest way to find us both Facebook and Twitter is at CrichtonCast. You can email info at CrichtonCast.com or just visit the website, CrichtonCast.com, and uh, leave a message on our contact form or uh, as a comment on the actual post for this episode. Either yep. way, we would love to hear from you. Let us know what you know. Um, so back to the uh, back to the movie. Uh, one of the things that I do like about watching older movies is like, oh, that guy's in so and so from here. <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, he was only in it for very little. But the doctor um, who did the autopsy on Karen Randall played Higgins in Magnum P.I. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, I know who that is. And so that's kind of there's there, I love watching older movies, 50s, 60s, 70s movies, because I'm like, oh, they did this in the 80s, 90s or 2000s or whatever. And, you know, I knew them from something else. And hey, this is one of your first roles. So. It, it's embarrassing how long it took for me to click who Dr. Carey was. I'm looking at him going, I know I've seen this guy in other things before. <laughs> and what was it you remembered him from? Uh, what finally clicked was Maverick. Maverick, yep. yep. <laughs> but he's yep. been in so many things. He is a very prolific guy. We're talking about James Coburn, who has been in a, a billion things between then and now. Um, mm-hmm. A great actor. But yeah, it was finally, I'm like, Oh, it's the Commodore. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this, you know, and he had a lot of movies in that time. I mean, he was kind of a hot commodity. He, this was not anywhere near his first movie or anything, and he had three different movies released in 72 as it was. So um, so I'm sure that between that and Jennifer o- O'Neill, like, you know, those were, your, those were your two big actors of the day that, you know, get them yeah. into this movie. These are popular. People will come and see this movie and... Yeah, so it, like I said, it, it makes sense for them to inject the the love story, make those changes to do so. Um, at the same time, I don't have to necessarily be happy about it <laughs> because I don't yes. like when they when they do that. It's the story stood on its own; it really did. Uh, the movie could have been made literally just like the book, and it still would have been a very good movie. Still would have had just as much action. Um, you know, it didn't need that little bit of love story to make it. But, uh, you know, Hollywood loves to do that, and especially back then they loved to do that. They, they had not gotten to a point at that, at that time where anybody in Hollywood felt comfortable putting out a movie that didn't have some sort of love story aspect to it. It just wasn't, it wasn't a thing. Yeah, um, no, that's true. It wasn't proven to, to be able to be a thing like it is now. Like now you know that you can get away with it if you have a good story. Um, back then they were like, no, 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 here's the formula. Here's what you need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this is ex- this is step one, two, and three to make a great movie and make it a blockbuster type of thing. Yeah. 
Um, I, I, I'm sure there were a lot of things left out on the cutting room floor. Uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit just with the penicillin thing, but I did read that the uh, the director it initially had a they turned it into the running time. It's a hour and a forty minutes or something like that. But the uh, there was a lot that was left out. I guess there was a little bit of an argument towards the end. It was uh, Blake Edwards that did the film, and so I'm sure that there's more to it. But you just you never know, like you know how much was it too maybe it was too dry the way that it was originally because you know like we talked about in the book the first third of the book you got to push yourself through it and you can't do that in a movie you can't push yourself through a third of a movie to really enjoy the rest of it you know um so who knows to whose credit who made this movie better who made this book better as a movie than it could have been originally (laughs) and that's what's going to be interesting the majority of the of the dry stuff from the first third of the book would have been a very short scene in a, in a movie. You know, yeah. we see a little bit of him working. In the book, you see him working and he describes everything that he's doing and the science behind it, and that's what makes it so dry. In a movie, you don't have to do the explanation. You just you just show him working. So that's why I think it could have been almost directly translated book to movie and still have been good, because I think that all of that explanation and stuff would have gone into a visual instead. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's also why I think writers like... Like, uh, like Tolkien and uh, George R. R. Martin are so great as films, whereas it's sometimes very hard to read because it gets so dense and they're, they're so descriptive. And it's nice when you're if you're trying to escape and you want to get in, you know, get outside your head and get into this world. But it can also be very hard to read if you're not if you don't have a lot of time dedicated to just sit and read. If you're trying to just get a story, so I think visually, you know, you can show a tree. And everybody knows what it looks like on the screen in half a second, whereas they take five pages to describe the tree to you <laughs> in the book. And I feel like that that's kind of how it is with Crichton sometimes when he gets into the medical aspects of things. He sometimes over-explains for the purpose of clarity, yes, but it can make for dry reading. Yeah, and I can get where he would come from that when that is your schooling and mm-hmm. your truly your comfort type of thing. Uh, you could accidentally go into that for a longer period than you may have needed to. But it is so great in adding the realism to the story. You know, this the book is something that you could have very well seen as happening in the 60s uh, in any hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily, I mean, who knows? Yes, the the murder thing, somebody could have been convicted of it. It was illegal at that time. So uh, oh, it, it that's definitely what makes did it happen. so fascinating. Yeah, yeah it definitely, there were definitely cases of uh, doctors or others who were uh, tried for murder when, you know, you could have been arrested just for doing the abortion if they catch you. But right. if it results in the death, then they get you on murder too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's. I think it is considered second degree murder, I, I, or it was at the time. I'm not sure um, if they bumped it up to first degree because of the you know the political climate or, or not. But <clears throat> it definitely did happen. Um, yeah. Whether or not there were you know many cases where the wrong person was accused, you know, then you start getting into the the fantastical, and the, that's where the story comes in. Um, you know, I don't think the wrong doctor would get accused too often because most of the time, like you, like we said, when people knew. Who was doing these things, and you know, even the doctors that were doing it, they they would keep some sort of record, even right. you know personally. So that part of it is where you get into the fantastical nature of the of the storytelling. But the the basis was definitely there. No, it was, and the uh, I do love that the captain he still has a the same kind of banter with him, and then at the very end when he's getting the confession, uh, they seem to kind of have this working together respect for each other type of thing. So mm-hmm. I do like how they kept the captain similar, pretty similar to the book. Yes. Oh, and speaking of the confession, I do think that that was another bit of uh, fun medical information that was. Almost overexplained in the book, but he stopped just short. Mm-hmm. I think he got to the point where had he had he spent two more sentences on it, it would have taken <laughs> you out of the moment. But he stopped just short of that of explaining what they were doing. You know, we, we, we've got this person who's addicted to uh, morphine, mm-hmm. and she's in there, and she is. You know, they're trying to get her to confess, and they're trying to get information from her, but she is high out of her mind on morphine at the moment. So what uh, what they do, what Doctor Barry does, and what Doctor Carey does, is threaten to inject her with. Um, uh, what is the name of that drug? 
it's what they it's what they use uh, out here in Ohio. Uh, heroin is a uh, big thing right now. Big, big, big problem. A lot of people oh. having uh, issues with heroin and uh, a lot of overdoses. Uh, all of the EMTs, uh, police officers, uh, everybody carries this stuff in a nasal spray. It carries the same exact drug in a nasal spray because it'll bring people down from an overdose if administered in time. Um, and it's the same drug. Um, uh, what, ah, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Uh, NAS something. It starts no, with an N. Uh, I know that. Well, no, <laughs> I, I know, and I'm not going to be of any help right now. So because I don't even, you know, a lot of that jargon is like, uh, how do I even pronounce these words when I'm reading a book? <laughs> you know, <laughs> a lot of the medical stuff. But uh, I wanted to say, I don't know, nasprin Nal- or nalorphin. It's nalorphin or nalorphine. Um, okay. But yeah, they make this now in um, what it is. What they use now is. Uh, naloxone that's what's in the uh the sprays but it's basically the same basically what it does is it counteracts uh opiates and it mm. does it in a hurry it does it very 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 quickly which if you're overdosing is good if you're just high it's very bad because it causes uh symptoms of withdrawal it makes you feel very very bad very very quickly and so dr carey slash dr barry in both the film and book uh convince this person that he is injecting her with this to bring her down from her high and cause her to to go into withdrawal symptoms and um what he actually does is just put some saline in her, and but through the power of the mind, she starts going into withdrawal and begging for morphine and gives them all the information they need. It's a little tortury, but at the yeah. same time, since uh, you know, for the time that this was said, I don't think it would have been considered that, and also the fact that he wasn't actually doing it, and the fact that he was just uh, using the power of suggestion and using the, the, the power of placebo to, to get these uh, results when there was no actual medical danger there. Right. Yeah, and to get to the confession uh, from her and wrap up that she was the one that performed the abortion, mm-hmm. which is uh, exactly what happened in the book. Yep. In that aspect, yeah. Yeah, she needed, uh, the, she needed the money to support her habit because she had been stealing from the hospital. You know, that's, that's what it all came down to is she'd been supporting her habit by stealing a little bit from the hospital here and there. Not enough to throw up alarms, you know. Yeah, I guarantee it was noticed because that stuff, mm-hmm. like I said, even a single, you know, a single drop of that stuff goes missing. Everybody knows about it. But it's not something that, you know, alarms are going to go off until there's a lot missing. Well, you know, this boyfriend of hers, who was also a boyfriend of Karen Randall's stole a big box of it, and so now people are being checked and searched on their way out of the hospital. So now she can't fit, you know, she can't uh, get her fix that way. So now she has to resort to actually buying it, and that's you know she didn't have the money, you know, because that's what happens when you get addicted to to these drugs is you end up uh, spending yourself completely out of it. Uh, that's the horrible thing about it. But uh, that's what happened to her. She ended up she needed the money. This girl came to her and she said, "Okay, I'll take your money. I'll do this." And uh, because she was not a doctor, because she was not, uh, you know, somebody who should have been doing this type of procedure, regardless of the legality of it, she messed it up and uh, the girl died because of it. And that's, yeah, and that is where we were at. So did you have, um, man, I'm trying to think of a favorite character in the movie, like, I think it would have to be Jennifer O'Connell's character, just from the acting standpoint, um... But, I, you know, there's not anybody that just stands out as being truly amazing or that, you know, that they introduced as new or the way they changed it or, or, or anything like that. Yeah, the, obviously Dr. Carey's character is interesting, and um, I would probably, you know, pick him as the favorite character in the movie if I had not read the book. If I was just looking at the movie completely on its own, I would probably say that Dr. Carey was my favorite character. Mm-hmm. However... I do like the way that they handled Dr. Barry a little bit better, so it kind of distracts from that. Yeah. So, yeah, I would, I would probably uh, agree that uh, Jennifer O'Neill's character as Georgia Hightower would probably be my favorite character from the movie in this sense. Um, I can definitely tell you who my least favorite character was in the film. Ooh, ooh, okay, let's have it. <laughs> um, the new wife of Senior mm. Randall. What, yes. What was her deal? What was her deal at all? Like, in the book, at least... She was distraught. She was upset that her stepdaughter had died. Yes, she wasn't best friends with her stepdaughter. She didn't really like her stepdaughter. But she was upset that a person was dead. Mm -hmm. She wasn't just being... She was being casual in the sense that basically I'm sure her husband and her husband's brother and everybody else had been told her, just chill, just act act casual. But you could tell that she was genuinely upset by the circumstances that were going on, even though she wasn't doing the right thing necessarily because she was the one who had fingered 
Dr. Lee in the first place. And right. we find out later it's because, well, she knew Dr. Lee was an abortionist because she'd had one from him. From Dr. Uh, Lee. So when, you know, stepdaughter shows up bleeding from an abortion, she just throws out the name of the first one she knows. Um, and then she compounds that by sticking to it later on, even though, you know, she thinks she's protecting uh, her husband's brother. But yeah. she doesn't realize that it wasn't him either. So in the movie, though, she is this just straight skanky is what she is. <laughs> She's like, you know, Dr. Carey comes over to ask her questions and she is just brazenly trying to flirt with him. And she's just absolutely no care whatsoever about this person being dead. Like none, zero. Um, and just doubling down on the lie again and just... Yeah, I did not like her at all in the film. That character in the film was the worst. Yeah, no, and I I would agree. I had not started thinking about a worst character, but there was just nothing, no depth to that character at all in the movie, where in the film, she has so many tie-ins to it, and then because she's married to Randall, but she's dating the other Randall, and yeah, and she had had an abortion, so she newly, like, you, you felt like she had something on every character in the book. Yeah. Like she, she knew so much. Where, yeah, I mean, the street smart skank is, I guess, a very well put way to put her in the movie. So, uh, I sadly, uh, that was a character that didn't have to be in the movie. Yeah, with the exception of her being the one who fingers the, you know, Doctor Tao in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, her her actual part in the film was was negligible. Um, yeah. Whereas in the book, it was definitely it was key that they went back to her to find out you know why did you name her? Um, the one thing I noticed that uh, another change between the the book and the film. They, you know, one thing they sort of kept the same, but then changed how it was handled was the fact that one of the reasons, one of the key pieces of evidence that really makes Dr. Barry believe his friend is the fact that he knows that Dr. Lee only charges $25 for an abortion. Mm-hmm. He charges what needs to cover the lab fees, and that's it. Yeah. Uh, he never charges more than that. And one of the pieces of quote unquote evidence against him is that uh, Karen Randall had recently wrote a check out to cash for $300. So. This was evidence presented. See, she paid for this abortion with this $300. Well, <clears throat> if that's the case, it wasn't for Dr. Lee. Now, was it? Because he doesn't charge that much. Um, in the book, when he finds out this information, he hangs on to it. And he mm-hmm. uses it later when it's more advantageous for him to, to point out that he knows this. He, he just kind of internalizes. He's like, oh, really? 300 huh? Okay. Mm-hmm. Sure. And then he goes back and he's like, okay, well, so now I know it's not, you know. Whereas in the movie, he immediately throws her back into her face. Oh, $300? Really? Well, that's funny because Dr. Toe only charges 25 Booyah! And I'm like, ah, no, that's mm. that, that was unnecessary. I'm like, why did he give up? That's a, that's a card. <laughs> you keep that. You hang right. on to it until you have to play it. And instead, he threw it out there, like, right back in her face and, and I just feel that, that could it. have yeah had that been a key piece of evidence later on it could have been something that now they have time to to change their story and explain that away mm-hmm. whereas before while they were thinking that that was a trump card um and then the whole business with them getting rid of the car, which just doesn't happen in the movie. Wow. <laughs> well, it doesn't happen in the – and then another thing, now that we're talking about the car, there's no lawyer. Dr. Tao in the movie does not have a lawyer. Yeah, he just ends up – basically Dr. Carey ends up working as his – basically as his lawyer there, yeah. Yeah, and because in the book, he does have a lawyer uh, who cannot take the case because he says he has too many cases. And so he gets assigned a new lawyer. And Dr. Barry works with that lawyer, and they follow the Randall brothers as they push a flaming car off of a cliff and take pictures of it and have all this evidence and stuff. You know, there's this whole meeting he has with the lawyer at a bar. And, yeah. you know, so there's— Yeah, and this lawyer, they, they get to the point where they've got enough evidence where Dr. Barry thinks that, okay, we've got this. We can get them to— to drop all the charges and get get my boy out. And the lawyer is like, no, no, no. I can make this a case. This this could be my big break. You know, he's, he's he wants to take it to trial now. And he's like, no, you don't understand. If, even if it goes to trial, my friend loses regardless of the outcome of the case because his mm-hmm. entire reputation is completely smeared at this point. It uh, wouldn't even matter if he moved to California. His, it's done. Right. So there's this whole, this whole separate subplot that they just did not explore at all in the movie. 
And again, I think for the movie, you know, we were already at an hour and 41 minutes. So for all these other subplots that make the book so uh, much more intriguing from a private detective investigator standpoint, uh, just had to be cut or had to be lost. I mean, when you have an entire, I mean, that was, I didn't even think about it when we were first talking about this, but there's just no lawyer at all. Uh, yeah. You know, you got to cut the entire character completely out. And they make changes to the character. You know, the um, uh, boyfriend, uh, you know, he's just this, uh, this white guy who's a masseuse or whatever now the creepiest um, <laughs> masseuse ever oh my gosh I forgot man about how this. awkward was that scene in the movie oh, when he's giving him a massage and he's like <sighs> threatening him and so he's like massaging his feet really hard and causing dr carrie pain and i just like that whole scene oh man. It, it was it was a very awkward scene um yeah. yes oh man yeah, he goes in. He he finds out this guy who's the boyfriend of yeah in in this in the movie. And I'm, again, this is something I don't know why they needed to change. In the book, it was an African American musician who was the the boyfriend of the nurse who had also been with Karen Randall. Mm-hmm. In the movie, it's now a very white. I mean, like California beach boy type uh, oh, surfer yeah. dude uh, massage Lifting therapist all the time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, <clears throat> and. Yeah, the, he goes in to, to ask this guy some questions, and, of course, he's he's getting a massage. <laughs> and the worst part is the end of that scene. He's already—it's very tense. He's already, like, purposely hurt him, you know, because of the questions he's asking. And then he's like, okay, roll over. <laughs> <laughs> and then they cut away, and I'm like, oh, God, what's going to happen? <laughs> no. Oh, my gosh. It's oh. like, no, don't roll over. Whatever no. you do. <laughs> You do not want to roll over. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was an odd. That was an odd choice for an interrogation. I think to go into an. I mean, I guess the only way. The only way I can explain it is that it shows that cockiness, that confidence in the characters. Like, yeah, I can go into a hostile interrogation and take my clothes off and lay down <laughs> on the bed and still be in control and still be the one in charge here. Like that. That takes. <laughs> takes a serious sack full of brass nuts right there yeah that takes a pair that's for sure (laughs) no i guess if you talk about it that way yeah i guess that's a pretty serious because that is i mean um we'll find it more and more as we talk about more of these transitions from book to movie but that is a character change and a little bit of a plot change that just took me to a different area there yeah yeah it was it was a weird uh weird choice i felt but uh you know it it worked out for them It, it definitely fit in with the movie it didn't feel out of place in the movie it's just looking at it from the perspective of having read the book where it's like well what yeah (laughs) yeah um but you know all in all and i felt like by the end of this movie um if it wasn't for the very end conversation i really was kind of hoping that he and uh, jennifer o'connell's care in hightower were not going to walk off arm in arm together because i thought you know she should just go back to her husband that just came back from skiing or whatever for years and uh he uh he should just you know like walk off of the sunset and this is what he does and i was like oh yeah i could see how you'd make this into multiple movies or a tv series or something you know this doctor detective guy like by the end of the movie i'm like yeah i could see where he might have been going but then they two end up together because i forgot Oh yeah, this is a romance. Is what this is in the movie. <laughs> yeah, they they introduce her character. He asks if she's married, and, and she's like, "Yes," but he's he's off skiing. And mm-hmm. the way she says it, it makes it sound like he's been gone for years, and she's just saying that he's off skiing. And then at the end of the film, he he's come back from skiing. And you're like, "Oh, he really was skiing. You were just here cheating on him the whole time." Wait a second. Like, yeah. Wait, well, what? <laughs> Talk about a quick romance. I'm sorry. I've been in the dating pool before I got married here, obviously. And uh, when she's all of a sudden driving him to show him apartments and stuff, and this is the apartment I want, and he's she's talking about picking out curtains for him and like moving in. I'm like, holy crap! I've never had a relationship move this fast. <laughs> yeah, she was uh, a little a little nutty there. Um, a little straightforward, yeah. But uh, I guess it, it fits in with the with the actress herself's life uh, a bit. I did a little bit. Yeah, you know, obviously I saw her. And I was like, wow, who's that? And I had to to pull her up on IMDb and take a look, and she uh, she had a life. She uh, did, yes. <laughs> um, seven marriages, or was it eight? No, it was uh, nine marriages to eight husbands. One of them she married <laughs> twice. 
she's still uh, she's still alive. She's only in her 60s. She has a farm. In that, and obviously, Eric and I were infatuated with this woman since we creeped up on her, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but she she has a horse ranch in Nashville, Tennessee, that she does stuff for um, girls and for um, um, veterans and their families and everything like that. Uh, and does speaking engagements. But yeah, and she's, um, if you wanted to know, like three children and all these grandchildren and stuff. But Yeah, she, she um, had a rough go of it there for a while. You know, um, she had actually attempted suicide at one point. Um, mm-hmm. She was, I, I believe there were some, some drug issues and all, obviously, uh, all the marriages. But uh, then she kind of figured stuff out at some point and she said, you know what, this this isn't how I want to uh, to live. And so and she's been married to the same person since uh, 1996 um, and is still now. So. That's good, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, but I yeah, so she's, she's had a heck of a life. You know, she has been, and apparently a heck of a career in the uh, movies and film. Like, one of the ones she was known best for, and even though she was only in it for, like, 14 minutes, is the summer of 42. Um, and I guess that was, like, this skyrocket thing for she eventually did modeling for CoverGirl in the 70s and all this other stuff. But apparently that 14 minutes, she was, like, every boy's dream at that point in this movie. So I'm going to have to find summer of 42 and watch it so <laughs> yeah it's um yeah like she showed up on screen and i was like whoa who is this mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> yep, exactly, um, yeah yeah just uh very 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 beautiful and uh did a great job fantastic fantastic acting in this film so uh all in all i would definitely say worth a watch um i wouldn't dissuade somebody from from watching the movie i would you know Give them the caveat, this is a movie that was made in 1972. Don't mm-hmm. expect anything <laughs> different than that. Um, but still definitely worth a watch. Um, yeah. No, it's a very 70s movie. Uh, you know, you've got a car chase scene that was not in the book at all. But it, back then, I mean, car chase things were, you know, that was a huge thing. Uh, try Try and watch the original Gone in 60 Seconds, which is just like 90 minutes of ridiculously long car chase scenes, you know? <laughs> I mean, that was just the thing to do. Um, so, you know, it's a 70s movie. And... Uh, it's not as much about there's not as much of the background and politics of the you know abortion stuff or the legality of that going on you know it's an investigative movie and it's just this guy with a pair of brass balls that's just going to go around and you know figure out what's wrong with this hospital and make things right type of thing yeah I feel they they kind of danced around the politics of it a little bit more in the uh, film like they they didn't change what was actually happening you know they didn't change that part of the story um but they didn't focus on the political climate of it. And I think that's because the political climate was changing pretty drastically throughout the, the years that this movie was being made. Between the book being published and the movie coming out, uh, you know, Roe versus Wade is in the courts at this point. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, <laughs> you know, a year after this movie comes out, uh, it's not illegal anymore. Mm-hmm. So they they don't focus on it much at all no like it, no. it's it's just this thing that happened and then it's briefly mentioned a couple other times they do point out that this girl has had several before um, mm-hmm. And so it's not that, you know, she's not new to this. Uh, this is, you know, they definitely point out uh, that she's, these, you know, she's living this life. Um, but, yeah, they, they focus on it quite a bit less, I think, than in the book. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if anybody is out there that maybe has not read the book or seen the movie, I'd be really interested if you watched the movie first to get an opinion. And I'm trying to decide, Eric, and this is something for us to talk about off air, but, like, the next one, you know, like, uh, I don't believe I've ever finished all of Terminal Man, so I'm trying to decide if I want to watch the movie first and then read the book, or how I want to do this, because I feel like every time you read a book, it's always going to be so much better than the movie. It it really is, almost always. There's been very few exceptions in my memory where I actually read a book and then look at the movie and say, okay, that was better. Um, there are a couple. I mean, it does happen occasionally. Sometimes they, they take the source material and actually improve on it. Um, but for the most part, usually the book is going to be better than the movie, and especially when it comes to Crichton stuff. Um, you know, we've we've seen that time and time again, especially when we get into the, the, the somewhat more recent films. Um, I think I have read The Terminal Man once upon a time, mm-hmm. so I don't... I might go ahead and do that also. Go ahead and watch the movie before rereading it, but yeah. only because I have, I believe at some point in the past, read the book. Um, this one was interesting for me because actually I think 
this might have been the only one of the books on our list that I know for a fact I had not read prior to this. And I would have to agree with you. On all of the books on our list, this is one I never finished because of that first third. And yeah. that's where this one is a kind of a toying toss for me on what was better, the book or the movie, because you do have to push yourself through the first third of the book for it to get amazing, in my opinion. And right. it is an amazingly good book. But because of that, in the movie, I mean, you just push right through the movie. You kind of get the gist of what the book is about. You just don't have all the really cool scientific details and some of these other side characters that were in the book that I believe made the story even better. So this this one's a coin flip for me. If you like reading, read the book. If you like movies, watch the movie. I think you're going to be happy either way. I just don't think either one of these is a completely stellar piece of work, though. Yeah, I agree. I I recommend um, both as far as something to, to look at or to read, but I don't. I don't recommend it high. It's not like, no, you have to read this. You have to watch this movie. And it's more like, right. yeah, yeah, I'd watch that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, it's more of a, a casual recommendation. Like, yeah, if you're into that sort of thing, sure, check it out. I wouldn't dissuade people from it. Right. Um, yeah, as for which is better, I'm kind of in the same boat as you. I, I, it would really, you know, just depend on my mood. <laughs> which there one? You, go. <laughs> you know, I, I could literally one day be like, yeah, definitely read the book instead, and then the next day be like, yeah, well, actually, you know what? Check out the movie. You know, yeah, um, check out the movie. You'll get the point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. It, it really just um, the story is consistent. You know, as far as the main plot, the main core plot is consistent enough where I'm not going to say, you know, it's not like with the Andromeda Strain when they went from the book to the miniseries when Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, well, you can't even compare these two things because they're a different story. (laughs) Yeah, completely different. (laughs) Um, This is the same core story. You get different details built up around the core story slightly here and there and some subplots in the book that you don't get in the film for time. But ultimately the core story is is consistent between the film and the book. So, yeah, yeah I, w- I would say same thing here. Coin flip, you know. Um, if if you're feeling visual and you want to take a look at uh, Jennifer O'Neill in her prime, watch the movie. The very true, very true. Um, there. <laughs> if you if if you want some quiet time to sit and read, and you don't mind getting through a few chapters of dry medical stuff, then uh, by all means read the book. Mm-hmm. No, and so there you go. I, you know, so for the two of us who are huge Michael Crichton fans, um, even Michael Crichton can do us a little bit of wrong. Not a lot, we're saying. Not a lot. It's still good, but eh, this isn't one that I plan on picking up and rereading again anytime in the near future. Yeah, definitely not one that I would need to reread. Um, definitely, you know, this one would be more of a once every five, six years maybe reread, <laughs> as opposed to a lot of his other stuff, which I could pick up once a year. Or, yeah, or sometimes more. In some cases, but um, yeah, definitely, this is one that you could go a long time between reads if you were, if you're even a multiple reader at all. If you're not a person who reads books more than once to begin with, then you know it's definitely a one timer. Yeah, that's for sure. So, uh, well, I hope you all have enjoyed uh, everything we've had on the case of need. As Eric said earlier, we love to hear from you. Every single way to hear from you is on CrichtonCast.com, and that would include Facebook or Twitter or just right on the website. We also have a phone number uh, 802 Jurassic um, if you want to give us a call and leave a voicemail that we will play on a future episode uh, anything on any of his books uh, and movie transitions you know we've got the Terminal Man Jurassic Park Rising Sun Congo Saphir Eaters of the Dead Time there's just so many of them and we would love to hear from you Absolutely, yeah. And uh, don't forget to tell all your friends about us. Uh, We are available on every major uh, platform for listening. So if you're listening to us on iTunes right now, for example, but your friend's on Android, you know, we're on the Google Play Music Store. Just search for the Crichton Cast. We're there. We're on Stitcher. Um, You know, we're everywhere you want to be. We're we're there. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So uh, So thank you very much for listening to this episode. Eric, this has been wonderful. I'm glad we found something that uh, eh, we could give a toss-up to it's uh okay (laughs) all right (laughs) absolutely 